Hi, and welcome back to Sefa Stories. So, thank you for joining me again in this read and listening or, or telling of Stephen King's The Gunslinger, the first book in the Dark Tower series. Um, I'm really excited to continue on. We're going to find out about Nort today, or the day that he died, and more about the man in black. So I'm really excited, you know, to continue on. As a quick recap of what we have already covered in our story, the man in black um, is fleeing across the desert. The gunslinger is following, and so that's that's basically what's what's happening. And in our last recording, the gunslinger had been in pursuit of the man in black, and he is following him even even to empty campsites. And as he is pursuing the man in black, we're finding out a little bit more. It's kind of almost an inception type of a, of a story where we have a remembrance and then a remem- another remembrance. It's almost like um, a story within a story within a story. So we hear about how the gunslinger has met a farmer on the edge of the desert brown and he's actually spending the evening with brown and they're having corn and beans together um, there's a bird that speaks his name is Zoltan and so at this point you know they're they're together in the evening and the gunslinger is telling brown about tall and how he has killed tall so now we're actually hearing about the story of tall as he's telling brown so we've we've typed a little dived a little bit deeper into our story and now we have covered um, the distance of him walking into Tall and going into um, a bar that's just barely hanging on and already um, there's a man there whose name is Nort that we have met very briefly who is very much acting out of character and it was enough to scare everyone in the bar to, to make them flee so the barkeep, who is a, a woman, has, you know, is very upset that she's lost all of her people from her bar, and she's really mad at the gunslinger, and he wants to know, you know, what, what's going on. So he wants to know about the man in black and his stay in this small town. So she has given him a, a proposition, and that is his time in exchange for the story of what's going on or or what has happened so she's taken him to her bedroom and they've had kind of an interesting an interesting time and so he's trying to get the story out of her and and is literally willing to pretty much do anything to find out what's going on with the man in black and so let's pick up basically from the last small section and then I'll continue on and at the end of this we'll we'll talk about our new our new reading and and kind of what we've covered so let's get started all right so this is them having had some intimates um, intimacy together and she's told him about a little bit about Nord and so you know he he wants more from her so let's pick up and then continue on she was trembling beside him Outside, the wind kept up its steady wind, and somewhere far away, a door was banging, like a sound heard in a dream. Mice ran in the walls, 
The gunslinger thought in the back of his mind that it was probably the only place in town prosperous enough to support mice. He put a hand on her belly, and she started violently, then relaxed. The man in black, he said. You had to have it, don't you? Couldn't just throw me a fuck and go to sleep? I have to have it. All right. I'll tell you. She grasped his hand in both of hers and told him. And with that, we'll continue on. He came in the late afternoon of the day Nort died, and the wind was whooping it up, pulling away the loose topsoil, sending sheets of loose grit and uprooted stalks of corn windmilling past. Jubal Kennerly had padlocked the livery, and a few of the other merchants had shuttered their windows and laid boards across the shutters. The sky was the color of old cheese, and the clouds flew across it, as if they had seen something horrifying in the desert waste that where they had been so lately. The gunslinger's quarry came in a rickety wig, in a rickety rig, with a rippling tarp tied across its bed. There was a big howdy-do of a grin on his face. They watched him come, and old man Kennerly, laying by the window with a bottle in one hand and a loose hot flesh of his second eldest daughter's left breast in the other, resolved not to be there if he should knock. But the man in black went by without slowing the bay that pulled his rig, and the spinning wheels spoomed up dust that the wind eagerly clutched. He might have been a priest or a monk. He wore a black robe that had been flowered with dust, and a loose hood covered his head and obscured his features, but not that horrible, horrid, happy grin. The robe rippled and flapped. From beneath the garment's hem, there peeped heavy buckled boots with square toes. He pulled up in front of Shebs and tethered the horse, which lowered its head and grunted at the ground. Around the back of the rig, he untied one flap, found a weathered saddlebag, threw it over his shoulder, and went through the bat wings. Alice watched him curiously, but no one else noticed his arrival. The regulars were drunk as lords. Shib was playing Methodist hymns ragtime, and the grizzled layabouts who had come in early to avoid the storm and to attend North's wake had sung themselves hoarse. Shib, drunk nearly to the point of senselessness, intoxicated and horny with his own continued existence, played with hectic shuttlecock speed, fingers flying like looms. Voices screeched and hollered, never coming, never overcoming the wind, but sometimes seeming to challenge it. In the corner, Zachary had thrown Amy Felden's skirts over her head and was painting reed charms on her knees. A few other women circulated. A fever seemed to be on them all. The dull storm glow that filtered through the bat wings seemed to mock them, however. Nort had been laid out on two tables in the center of the room. His engineer's boots made a mystical V. His mouth hung open in a slack-jawed grin, although someone had closed his eyes and put slugs on them. His hands had been folded on his chest with a sprig of devil grass in them. He smelled like poison. The man in black pushed back his hood and came to the bar. Alice watched him, feeling trepidation mixed with the familiar want that hid within her. There was no religious symbol on him, although that meant nothing by itself. Whiskey, he said. His voice was soft and pleasant. I want the good stuff, honey. 
She reached under the counter and brought out a bottle of Star. She could have palmed off the local pulp skull on him as her best, but did not. She poured, and the man in black watched her. His eyes were large, luminous. The shadows were too thick to determine their color exactly. Her need intensified. The hollering and whooping went on behind, unabated. Shib, the worthless gelding, was playing about the Christian soldiers, and somebody had persuaded Aunt Mill to sing. Her voice, warped and distorted, cut through the babble like a dull axe through a calf's brain. Hey, Allie! She went to serve, resentful of the stranger's silence, resentful of his no-color eyes and her own restless groin. She was afraid of her needs. They were capricious and beyond her control. They might be the signal of change, which would in turn signal the beginning of her old age, a condition and toll which was usually as short and bitter as a winter sunset. She drew beer until the keg was empty, then broached another. She knew better than to ask Sheb. He would come willingly enough, like the dog he was, and would either chop off his own fingers or spoon beer all over everything. The stranger's eyes were on her as she went about it. She could feel them. It's busy, he said when she returned. He had not touched his drink, merely rolled it between his palms to warm it. Wake, she said. I noticed the departed. They're bums, she said with sudden hatred. All bums. It excites them. He's dead. They're not. He was their, he was the butt of their jokes when he was alive. It's not right that he should be there, but now it's... She trailed off, not able to express what it was or how it was obscene. Weed-eater. The wind howled and shrieked. Weed-eater? Yes. What else did he have? Her throat, her tone was, her tone was accusing, but he did not drop his eyes, and she felt the blood rush to her face. I'm sorry. Are you a priest? This must revolt you. I'm not and it doesn't. He knocked the whiskey back neatly, and did not grimace. Once more, please, once more with feeling, as they say in the world next door. She had no idea what that might mean, and was afraid to ask. I had to see the color of your coin first, I'm sorry. No need to be. He put a rough silver coin on the counter, thick on one edge, thin on the other, and she said as she would say later, I don't have change for this. He shook his head, dismissing it, and watched absently as she poured again. "'Are you only passing through?' she asked. He did not reply for a long time, and she was about to repeat when he shook his head impatiently. "'Don't talk trivialities. You're here with death.' She recoiled, hurt and amazed, and her first thought being that he had lied about his holiness to test her. "'You cared for him,' he said flatly. "'Isn't that true?' Who, nor, she laughed, affecting annoyance to cover her confusing her confusion. I think you better. You're soft-hearted and a little afraid, he went on. And he was on the weed, looking out Hell's back door. And there he is. They've even slammed the door now, and you don't think they'll open it until it's time for you to walk through. Isn't it so? What, he drunk? Missed a note, and he dead. The man in black intoned, giving the words a sardonic little twist. Dead as anybody. Dead as you or anybody. Get out of my place. She felt a trembling, loathing spring up in her, but the warmth still radiated from her belly. It 
It's all right, he said softly. It's all right. Wait. Just wait. The eyes were blue. She felt suddenly easy in her mind, as if she'd taken a drug. Did is anybody, he said. Do you see? She nodded dumbly, and he laughed aloud, a fine, strong, untainted laugh that swung heads around. He whirled and faced them, suddenly the center of attention. Aunt Mill faltered and subsided, leaving a cracked high note bleeding on the air. Ship struck a discord and halted. They all looked at the stranger uneasily. Sand rattled against the sides of the building. The silence held, spun itself out. Her breath had clogged in her throat, and she looked down and saw that both hands were pressed to her belly beneath the bar. They all looked at him, and he looked back at them. Then the laugh burst forth again, strong, rich, beyond denial. But there was no urge to laugh along with him. I'll show you a wonder, he cried at them. But they only watched him like obedient children taken to see a magician, in which whom they have grown too old to believe. The man in black sprang forward, and Aunt Mill drew away from him. He grinned fiercely and slapped her broad belly. A short, unwitting cackle was forced out of her, and the man in black threw back his head. <laughs> it's better, isn't it? Aunt Mill cackled again, suddenly broke into sobs, and fled blindly to the doors. The others watched her go silently. The storm was beginning. Shadows followed each other, rising and falling on the white cyclorama of the sky. A man near the piano, with a forgotten beer in one hand, made a groaning, slobbering sound. The man in black stood over Nort, grinning down at him. The wind howled and shrieked and thrummed. Something large struck the side of the building hard enough to make it shake, then bounced away. One of the men at the bar tore himself free and headed for some quieter locale, moving in great grotesque strides. Thunder wretched at the sky with a sound like some god coughing. All right, the man in black grinned. All right, let's get down to it. He began to spit into Nord's face, aiming carefully. The spittle gleamed on the corpse's forehead, purled down the shaven beak of his nose. Under the bar, her hands worked faster. Shib laughed, loon-like, and hunched over. He began to cuff up phlegm, huge, sticky gobs of it, and let fly. The man in black roared approval and pounded him on the back. Ship grinned, one gold tooth twinkling. Some fled. Others gathered in the loose ring around Nort, his face and the dew-lapped rooster wrinkles of his neck and upper chest gleamed with liquid, liquid so precious in this dry country. And suddenly the rain of spit stopped, as if on signal. There was ragged, heavy breathing. The man in black suddenly lunged across the body, jackknifing over it in a smooth arc. It was pretty, like a flash of water. He caught himself on his hands, sprang to his feet in a twist, grinning, and went over again. One of the watchers forgot himself, began to applaud, and suddenly backed away, eyes cloudy with terror. He slobbered a hand across his mouth and made for the door. Nord twitched the third time the man in black went across. A sound went through the watchers, a grunt, and then they were silent. The man in black threw back his head and howled. His chest moved in quick, shallow rhythm as he sucked air. 
He began to go back and forth at a faster clip, pouring over Nort's body like water poured from one glass to another, then back again. The only sound in the room was the tearing rasp of his respiration and the rising pulse of the storm. There came the moment when Nort drew a deep, dry breath. His hands rattled and pounded aimlessly on the table. Ships screeched and exited. One of the women followed him, her eyes wide, her wimple billowing. The man in black went across once, twice, thrice. The body on the table was vibrating now, trembling, wrapping, and twitching, like a large yet essentially lifeless doll with some monstrous, monstrous clockwork hidden inside. The smell of rot and excrement and decay bellowed up in choking waves. There came a moment when his eyes opened. Allie felt numb, and the feelingless feet propelling her backward. She struck the mirror, making it shiver, and a blind panic took over. She bolted like a steer. So here's your wonder, the man in black called after her, panting. I've given it to you. Now you can sleep easy. Even that isn't irreversible. Although, although it's so, so goddamn funny. And he began to laugh again. The sound faded as she raced up the stairs, not stopping until the door to the three rooms above the bar was bolted. She began to giggle then, racking, rocking back and forth on her haunches by the door. And the sound rose to a keening well that mixed with the wind. And she kept hearing the sound Nort had made when he came back to life, the sound of fists knocking blindly on the lid of a coffin. What thoughts she wondered could be left in his reanimated brain? What had, what had he seen while dead? How much did he remember? Would he tell? With the secrets of the grave waiting downstairs. The most terrible thing about such questions, she reckoned, was that a part of you really wanted to ask. Below her, Nort wandered absently out into the storm and began to pull some weed. The man in black, now the only patron in the bar, perhaps watched him go, perhaps still grinning. When she forced herself to go back down that evening, carrying a lamp in one hand and a heavy stick of stove wood in the other, the man in black was gone, rig and all. But Nort was there sitting at a table by the door as if he had never been away. The smell of the weed was on him, but not as heavily as she might have expected. He looked up at her and smiled tentatively. Hello, Allie. Hello, Nort. She put the stove wood down and began lighting the lamps, not turning her back to him. I've been touched by God, he said presently. Ain't going to die no more. He said so. It was a promise. How nice for you, Nort. The spill she was holding dropped through her trembling fingers. She picked it up. I'd like to stop chewing the grass, he said. I don't enjoy it no more. It don't seem right for a man touched by God to be chewing the weed. Then why don't you stop? Her exasperation startled her into looking at him as a man again, rather than an infernal miracle. And what she saw was a rather sad-looking specimen, only half stone, looking hang-dog and ashamed. She could not be frightened by him any more. I shake, he said, and I want it. I can't stop, Allie. You was always good to me. He began to weep. I can't even stop peeing myself. What am I? What am I? 
and she walked to the table and hesitated there uncertain he could have made me not want it he said through the tears he could have done that if he could have made me be alive i ain't complaining i don't mean to complain he stared around hauntedly and whispered he might strike me dead if i did maybe it's a joke he seemed to have quite a sense of humor Nort took his poke from where it dangled inside his shirt and brought out a handful of grass. Unthinkingly, she knocked it away, then threw her hand back, horrified. I can't help it, Allie. I can't. And he made a crippled dive for the poke. She could have stopped him, but she made no effort. She went back to lighting the lamps, tired, although the evening had barely begun. But nobody came in that night, except for old man Kennerly, who had missed everything and he did not seem particularly surprised to see Nort. Perhaps someone had told him what had happened. He ordered beer and asked where Sheb was and pawed her. Later, Nort came to her and held out a folded piece of paper in one shaky, no right to be alive hand. He left you this, he said. I nearly forgot. If I'd forgot, you would have come back and killed me sure. Paper was valuable, a commodity much to be treasured she didn't like to handle this. It felt very nasty. Written on it was a single word, Allie. How do you know my name? She asked Nort, and Nort only shook his head. She opened it and read this. You want to know about death. I left him behind a word, and that word is nineteen. If you say it to him, his mind will be opened, and he will tell you what bliss beyond. He will tell you what he saw. The word is nineteen. Knowing will drive you mad, but sooner or later you will ask. You won't be able to help yourself. Have a nice day. Walter O'Dim. P.S. The word is nineteen. You will try to forget, but sooner or later it will come out of your mouth like Vomit. Nineteen. Oh, dear God, and she knew that she would. Already it trembled on her lips. Nineteen, she would say, Lord, listen. Nineteen, and the secrets of death and the land beyond would be open to her. Sooner or later, you will ask. The next day, things were almost normal, although none of the children followed Nort. The day after that, the cat calls resumed. Life had gotten back on its own sweet kill. The uprooted corn was gathered together by the children. A week after, a week after Nort's resurrection, they burned it in the middle of the street. The fire was momentarily bright, and most of the barflies stepped out or staggered out to watch. They looked primitive. Their faces seemed to float beneath between the flames and the ice chip brilliance of the sky. Ali watched them and felt a pang of fleeting despair for the sad times of this world, the loss. Things had stretched apart. There was no glue at the center anymore. Somewhere, something was tottering, and when it fell, all would end. She had never seen the ocean, never would. If I had guts, she murmured, if I had guts, 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 Nort raised his head at the sound of her voice and smiled emptily at her from hell. She had no guts, only a bar and a scar and a word. 
It struggled behind her closed lips. Suppose she were to call him over now, draw him close despite his stink. Suppose she said the word into the waxy burger lug he called it ear. His eyes would change. They would turn into his eyes, those of the man in the robe. And then Nort would tell what he'd seen in the land of death, what lay beyond the earth and the worms. I'll never say that word to him. But the man who had brought Nort back to life and left her a note, left her a word like a cocked pistol, and she would someday put that to her temple. She had known better. Nineteen would open the secret. Nineteen was the secret. She caught herself writing it in a puddle on, on the bar. Nineteen, and skidded it to nothingness when she saw Nort watching her. The fire burned down rapidly, and her customers came back in. She began to dose herself with a star of whiskey, and by midnight she was blackly drunk. She ceased her narrative, and when he made no immediate comment, she thought at first the story had put him to sleep. She began to drowse herself when he asked, That's all? Yes, that's all. It's very late. Hmm. He was rolling another cigarette. Don't go get your tobacco dandruff in my bed, she told him, more sharply than she had intended. No. Silence again. The tip of his cigarette winked off and on. He'll be leaving in the morning. She said, Dolly, I should. I think he's left a trap here for me. Just like he left one for you. Do you really think that number would? If you like your sanity, you don't ever want to say that word to Nort, the gunslinger said. Put it out of your head. If you can, teach yourself that the number after 18 is 20. That half of 38 is 17. The man who signed himself Walter O'Dim is a lot of things, but a liar isn't one of them. But when the urge comes and it's strong, come up here and hide under your quilts and say it over and over again. Scream it if you have to, until the urge passes. A time will come when it won't pass. The gunslinger made no reply, for he knew this was true. The trap had a ghastly perfection. If someone told you you'd go to hell if you thought about seeing your mother naked, once when the gunslinger was very young, he had been told this very thing, you'd eventually do it. And why? Because you did not want to imagine your mother naked. Because you did not want to go to hell. Because if given a knife and a hand in which to hold it, the mind would eventually eat itself. Not because it wanted to, because it did not want to. Sooner or later, Allie would quarrel Nort over and say the word. Don't go, she said. We'll see. He turned on his side away from her, but she was comforted. He would stay, at least for a little while. She drowsed. On the edge of sleep, she thought again about the way Nort had addressed him in that strange talk. It was the only time she had seen her strange new lover express emotion. Even his lovemaking had been a silent thing, and only at the last had his breathing roughened, then stopped for a second or two. It was like something out of a fairy tale or a myth, a fabulous, dangerous creature. Could he grant wishes? She thought the answer was yes, and that she would have hers. He would stay a while, and that was wish enough for a luckless, scarred bitch such as she. Some time tomorrow was enough, time to think of another or a third. She slept. In the morning, she cooked him grits 
which he ate without comment. He shoveled them in without thinking about her, hardly seeing her. He knew he should go. Every minute he sat here, and the man in black was farther away, probably out of the hard pan and the arroyos and into the desert by now. His path had been undeviatingly southeast, and the gunslinger knew why. Do you have a map? he asked, looking up. Of the town? she laughed. There isn't enough of it to need a map. No, of what's southeast of here, her smile faded. The desert, just the desert. I thought you'd stay for a while. What's on the other side of the desert? How would I know? Nobody crosses it, nobody's tried since I was here. She wiped her hands on her apron, got potholders, and dumped a tub of water she'd been heating into the sink where it splashed and steamed. The clouds all go that way. It's as if something sucks them. He got up. Where are you going? She heard the shrill fear in her voice and hated it. To the stable. If anyone knows, the hostel will. He put his hands on her shoulders. The hands were hard, but they were also warm. And to arrange for my mule. If I'm going to be here, he should be taken care of for when I leave. But not yet. She looked up at him. But you watch that, Kennerly. If he doesn't know a thing, he'll make it up. Thank you, Allie. And when she turned to the sink, feeling the hot, warm drift of her grateful tears. I'm sorry. And when he left, she turned to the sink, feeling the hot, warm drift of her grateful tears. How long since anyone had thanked her, someone who mattered. So, let's continue on. And then we'll have a small break. Um, and we'll continue on. So now he's going to arrange for his mule. Okay. Kennerly was a toothless and unpleasant old satyr who had buried two wives and was plagued with daughters. Two half-grown ones pinked at the gunslinger from the dusty shadows of the barn. A baby drooled happily in the dart. A full-grown one dirty, blonde, and sensual, watched with a speculative curiosity as she drew water from the groaning pump beside the building. She caught the gunslinger's eye and pinched her nipples between her fingers and chopped him a wink, then went back to pumping. The hostler met him halfway between the door to his establishment and the street. His manner facilitated between a kind of hateful hostility and craving fawning. It's being cared for. Never fear it he said, and before the gunslinger could reply, Kearnley turned on his daughter with his fist up, a desperate, scrawny rooster of a man. You get in, Subi! You get right the hell in! Subi began to drag her bucket sullenly towards the shack um, appended to the barn. You met my mule, the gunslinger said. Yes, I ain't seen no mule in quite a time, especially one that looks as straight as his yarn, two eyes, and four legs. His face squinched together alarmingly, an expression meant to convey either extreme pain or the notion that a joke had been made. The gunslinger assumed it was the latter, although he had made little sense of humor himself. Time was I used to go wild for one of them, Kennerly continued, but the world does move on. Ain't seen nothing but a few muty oxen and the coach horses and Subi, I will you for God. I don't bite, the gunslinger said pleasantly. Kennerly grinned, cringed and grinned. The gunslinger saw murder in the eyes quite clearly, although he did not fear it. He marked it as a man might mark a page in a book, one that contained potentially valuable instructions. 
It ain't you. Gods know it ain't you, he grinned loosely. She's just naturally gawky. She got a devil. She wild. His eyes darkened. It's coming to last times, mister. You know how it says in the book? Children won't obey their parents, and the plague will be visited on the multitudes, and you only got to listen to the preacher woman to know it. The gunslinger nodded and pointed, then pointed southeast. What's out there? Colonel grinned, again showing gums and a few sociable yellow teeth. Dwellers, wade, desert, what else? He cackled, and the eyes measured the gunslinger coldly. How big is the desert? Pig, Kennerly endeavored to look serious, as if answering a serious question. Maybe a thousand wheels, maybe two thousand. I can't tell you, mister, there ain't nothing out there but devil grass and maybe demons. Heard there was a speaking ring summers on the far side, but that's probably a lie. That's the way the other fellow went, the one who ficked up Nordy when he was sick. Sick? I heard he was dead. Kennerly kept grinning. Well, maybe, but we're grown-up men, ain't we? But you believe in demons. Kennerly looked affronted. That's a lot different. Preach woman says. He blathered and palavered ever fondward. The gunslinger took off his hat and wiped his forehead. The sun was hot, beating steadily. Kennerly seemed not to notice. Kennerly had a lot to say, none of it sensible. And a thin shadow by the livery, the baby girl was gravely smearing dirt on her face. The gunslinger finally grew impatient, cut the man off in mid-spate. You don't know what's after the desert? Kennerly shrugged. Some might. Coach ran through part of it fifty years ago. My pap said so. You say twas mountains. Others say an ocean. Green ocean with monsters. And some say that's where the world ends. But there ain't nothing but lights that'll drive a man blind in the face of God with his mouth open to eat them up. Trouble, the gunslinger said shortly. Sure it is, Kennerly cried happily. He cringed again, hating, fearing, wanting to please. You see, my mules looked after. He flicked Kennerly another coin, which Kennerly caught on the fly, and a gunslinger thought a boy, a dog, will catch a ball. Surely, stain a little. I guess I might. There'll be water. If God's wills, it sure will. Kennerly laughed unhappily, but his eyes went on wanting the gunslinger stretched out dead at his feet. That Hallie is pretty nice when she wants to be, ain't she? The hostler made a loose circle with his left fist and began poking his right finger rapidly in and out of it. Did you say something? The gunslinger asked remotely. Sudden terror dawned in Kennerly's eyes, like twin moons coming over the horizon, and he put his hands behind his back like a naughty child caught with a jam jar. No sign, not a word, and I'm right sorry if I did. He caught Subi leaning out of a window and whirled on her. I'll wall you now, you little slut whore for God I'll The gunslinger walked away, aware that Kennelly had turned to watch him, aware of the fact that he could whirl and catch the hostler with some true and untinctured emotion to still on his face. Why bother? It was hot, and he knew what emotion would be there. Just hate. Hate of the outsider. He had gotten all the man had to offer. The only sure thing about the desert was its size. The only sure thing about this town was that it wasn't all played out here. Not yet. All right. And I think I'm going to continue on. If you're good, I'm good. All right. He and Allie were in bed when Shep kicked the door open and came in with a knife. It had been four days, and they had gone by in a blinking haze. He ate, 
He slept. He had sex with Allie. He found that she played the fiddle, and he made her play it for him. She sat by the window in the milky light of daybreak, only a profile, and played something haltingly that might have been good if she had had some training. He felt a growing but strangely absent-minded affection for her and thought this might be the trap the man in black had left behind. He walked out sometimes. He thought very little about everything. He didn't hear the piano player come up. His reflexes had sunk. That didn't seem to matter either, although it would have frightened him badly in another time and place. Alice was naked, the sheet below her breasts, and they were preparing to make love. Please, she was saying, like before, I want that, I want... The door crashed open, and the piano player made his ridiculous knock-kneed run for the sun. Allie did not scream, although Shib held an eight-inch carving knife in his hand. He was making a noise, an articulate blabbering. He sounded like a man being drowned in a bucket of mud. Spittle flew. He brought the knife down with both hands, and the gunslinger caught his wrists and turned them. The knife went flying. Shep made a high, screeching noise like a rusty screen door. His hand fluttered in marionette movements, both wrists broken. The wind gritted against the window, and Allie's looking glass on the wall, faintly clouded and distorted, reflected the room. She was mine, he wept. She was mine, first mine. Allie looked at him and got out of bed. She put on a wrapper, and the gunslinger felt for a moment empathy for a man who must be seeing himself coming out of the far end of what he once had. He was just a little man, and the gunslinger suddenly knew where he had seen him before, known him before. It was for you, Shib sobbed. It was only for you, Allie, and it was you first, and, and it was all for you, and oh God, oh dear God. And the words dissolved in a paroxysm of unintelligibilities, finally to tears. He rocked back and forth, holding his broken wrist to his belly. Shush, shush, let me see. She knelt beside him. Broken, Shib, you ass. How are you make you living now? Didn't you know, didn't you know you were never strong? She helped him to his feet, tried to hold his hands to his face, but they would not obey, and he wept nakedly. Come on over to the table and let me see what I can do. She led him to the table and set his wrists with slats of kindling from the firebox. He whipped weakly and without volition. Magus, the gunslinger said, and the little piano player looked around, eyes wide. The gunslinger nodded amiably enough now that Shep was no longer trying to stick a knife in his lights. Midges, he said, on the clean sea. What about it? You were there, weren't you? Many and many, as they did say. What if I was? I don't remember you. But you remember the girl, don't you? The girl named Susan and Reap Knight. His voice took on an edge. Were you there for the bonfire? The little man's lips trembled. They were covered with spit. His eyes said he knew the truth, and he was closer to dead now than when he'd been bursting in with a knife in his hand. Get out of here, the gunslinger said. Understanding dawned in Shem's eyes. But he was just a boy, one of them three boys. You come to Count Stock, and Elder Jonas was in, the coffin hunter, and get out while you still can, the gunslinger said and Sheb went, holding his broken wrists before him. She came back to the bed. What was that about? Never mind, he said. All right, 
Then, where, where were we? Nowhere, he rolled on the side away from her. She said patiently, You knew about him and me, and he did what he could, which wasn't much, and I took what I could because I had to. There's nothing to be done. What else is there? She touched his shoulder. Is it I'm glad that you are so strong? Not now, he said. Who was she? And then answering her own question. A girl you loved? Believe it, Allie. I can make you strong. No, he said. You can't do that. All right, so that's the end of that segment. It looks like he is spending a little time with Allie, and he has now remembered where he has seen Shep before, and that looks like it's, there's a lot there, but, and I'd love to know. Maybe we'll get there. So I'm going to take a small break, and when I return, we will continue on with our story and see where we're being led. So, uh, thank you. Don't go too far, and I'll be right back. Hi there, and welcome back. So, I'm really enjoying this story, and I hope you are too. So... Shib has just stormed into the gunslingers in Allie's bedroom and he um, has broken rest for his efforts and there was a mention of a, another time and another place and of course you know Allie is still wanting to have some intimacy with the gunslinger and at this point he's you know the gunslinger is not in the mood so that's where we ended off where she says, leave it, Allie. And he's like, she says, I can make you strong. No, he says, you can't do that. Okay, so we're continuing on. And let's keep going. The next night, the bar was closed. It was whatever passed for the Sabbath and toll. The gunslinger went to the tiny, leaning church by the graveyard while Allie washed tables with strong disinfectant and rinsed kerosene lamps uh, lamp chimneys and soapy water. An odd purple dusk had fallen, and the church, lit from the inside, looked almost like a blast furnace from the road. I don't go, Allie had said shortly. The woman who preaches has got poison religion. Let the respectable ones go. He stood in the vestibule, hidden in the shadow, looking in. The pews were gone, and the congregation stood. He saw Caroline and his brood, Kastner, owner of the town's scrawny drug goods emporium, and his slat-sided wife, a few barflies, a few town women he had never seen before, and surprisingly, Shub. They were singing a hymn raggedly a cappella. He looked curiously at the mountainous woman at the pulpit. Allie had said, She lives alone, hardly sees anybody, only comes out on Sunday to serve up the hellfire. Her name is Sylvia Pittston. She's crazy, and she got the hoodoo on them and they like it that way. It suits them. No description could take the measure of the woman, breasts like earthworks, huge pillar of a neck overtopped by a pasty white moon of a face, which blinked eyes so large and so dark they seemed to be bottomless tarns. 
Her hair was a beautiful rich brown, and it was piled atop her head in a haphazard sprawl, held by a hairpin almost big enough to be a meat skewer. She wore a dress that seemed to be made of burlap. The arms that held the hymnal were slabs. Her scream, her skin was creamy, unmarked, lovely. He thought that she must top three hundred pounds. He felt a sudden red-hot lust for her that made him feel shaky, and he turned his head and looked away. Shall we gather at the river, the beautiful, the beautiful river? Shall we gather at the river? kingdom of God. The last note of the chorus faded off and there was a moment of shuffling and coughing. She waited. When they were settled, she spread her hands over them as if in benediction. It was an evocative gesture. My dear little brothers and sisters in Christ. It was a haunting line. and For a moment, the gunslinger felt mixed feelings of nostalgia and fear stitched in with an airy feeling of deja vu and he thought I've dreamed this or I was here before and if so when not mages no not there he shook the feeling off the audience perhaps 25 all told had become dead silent every eye touched the preacher woman the subject of our meditation tonight is the interloper her voice was sweet, melodious, the speaking voice of a well-trained contralto. A little rustle ran through the hall audience. I feel, Sylvia Piston said reflectively, that I know almost everyone in the good book, personally. In the last five years I have worn three of them, precious though may any book be in this ill world, and unaccountable numbers before that. I love the story, and I love the players in that story. I have walked arm in arm in the lion's den with Daniel. I stood with David when he was tempted by Bathsheba as she bathed at the pool. And I have been in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I slew two thousand with Samson when he sung, swung the jawbone and was blinded with St. Paul on the road to Damascus. I wept with Mary at Calcutta. A soft, shuring sigh in the audience. I have known and loved them. There is only one, and she held up a finger, only one player, greatest in all dramas that I do not know. Only one who stands outside with his face in the shadow. Only one who makes my body tremble and my spirit quail, and I fear him. I don't know his mind, and I fear him. I fear the interloper. Another sigh, and one of the women had pull, put a hand over her mouth as if to stop a sound, and was rocking, rocking. The interloper who came to Eve as a snake on its belly in the dust, grinning and writhing. The interloper who walked among the children of Israel while Moses was up on the mount, who whispered to them to make a golden idol, a golden calf, and to worship it with foulness and fornication. Moans, nods. The interloper. He stood on the balcony with Jezebel and watched as King Azaz fell screaming to his death, and she, she grinned as the dogs gathered and laughed up his blood. Oh, my little brothers and sisters, watch thou for the interloper. 
Yes, oh, Jesus. This was a man the gunslinger had first noticed coming into town, the one with the straw hat. He's always been there, my brothers and sisters, but I don't know his mind. You don't know his mind. Who could understand the awful darkness that swirls there, the pride, the titanic blasphemy, the unholy glee and the madness, the gibbering madness that walks and crawls and wiggles through men's most awful wants and desires. Oh, Jesus, Savior, it was him who took our Lord up on the mountain. Yes, it was him that tinted and showed him all the world's pleasures. Yes! It was him that will return when last times comes on this world. And they all coming, my brothers and sisters. Can't you feel they are? Yes. Rocking and sobbing, the congregation became a sea. The woman seemed to point at all and none of them. It was him that will come as the Antichrist, a crimson king with bloody eyes to lead men flaming to the flaming bowels of perdition, to the bloody end of wickedness. A star one word hangs blazing in the sky as gauze gnaws at the vitals of children, as women's wombs give forth monstrosities, as the works of men's hands turn to blood. Ah, oh God, God, the woman fell on the floor, her legs crashing up and down against the wood. One of her shoes flew off. It's him that stands behind every fleshly pleasure. Him who made the machines with Lemurk stamped on them. Him, the interloper. Lemurk, the gunslinger thought. Or maybe she said Lamarck. The word had some vague resonance for him, but nothing he could put his finger on. Nonetheless, he followed it away in his memory, which was capricious. Yes, Lord! They were screaming. A man fell on his knees, holding his head and praying. When you take a drink, who holds the bottle? The interloper! When you sit down to a borrow or watch me table, who turns the cards? The interloper! When you riot in the flesh of another's body, when you pollute yourself with your solitary hand, whom do you sell your soul? Enter, oh Jesus, oh Lord, ah, ha, ha, and who is she? She cried. But calm within, he could sense the calmness, the mastery, the control, the domination. He thought suddenly, with a terror and absolute surety, the man who called himself Walter had left a demon in her. She was haunted. He felt the hot ripple of sexual desire again through his fear and thought that this was somehow like the word the man in black had left in Allie's mind, like a loaded trap. The man who was holding his head crashed and blundered forward. I'm in hell! He screamed up at her. His face twisted and writhed as the snakes crawled beneath his skin. I've done fornications. i done gambling. I don't sins. I that his voice rose skyward in a dead for hysterical wail that drowned articulation. He held his head as if it would burst like an overripe cantaloupe at any moment. The audience stilled as if on cue, as if a cue had been given, frozen in their half erotic poses of ecstasy. Sylvia Piston reached down and grasped his head. The man's cry ceased as her fingers, strong and white, unblemished and gentle, worked through his hair. He looked up at her dumbly. "'Who was with you in sin?' she asked. Her eyes looked into his deep enough, gentle enough, cold enough to 
drown in the the interloper call who God Lord has Satan raw oozing whispers will you renounce eagerly oh yes yes oh my my Jesus Savior she rocked his head he stared at her with the blank shiny eyes of a zealot if he walked through that door she hammered a finger at the vestibule shadows where the gunslinger stood would you renounce him to his face on oh, my mother's name do you believe in the eternal love of Jesus he began to weep oh you fucking hey I do he forgives you that Johnson praise God Johnson said still whispering weeping I know he forgives you just as I know he will cast out the unrepentant from his palaces into the place of burning darkness beyond the end of end world praise God the congregation drained spoke it solemnly just as I know the centiloper this Satan this lord of lies and saints serpents will be cast down and crushed will you crush him if you see him Johnson yes and praise God he wept with both feet with both feet will you crush him if you see him brothers and sisters yes sated if you see him sashaying down main street tomorrow praise god the gunslinger faded back out of the door headed for town the smell of the desert was clear in the air almost time to move on almost in bed again she won't see you Allie said. She sounded frightened. She doesn't see anybody. She only comes out on Sunday evenings to scare the hell out of everybody. How long has she been here? Twelve years, or only maybe two. Time's funny, as all knows. Let's not talk about her. Where did she come from? Which direction? I don't know. Lying. Allie? I don't know. Allie? All right, all right. She came from the dwellers, from the desert. I thought so. He relaxed a little. Southeast, in other words, along the path he followed. The one he could see, even in the sky sometimes. He guessed the preacher woman had come a lot further than from the dwellers or even the desert. Had she traveled so far? By some old machine that still worked? A train, mayhap? Where does she live? Her voice dropped a notch. If I tell you, will you make love to me? I'll make love to you anyway, but I want to know. Allie sighed. It was an old, yellowed sound, like turning pages. She has a house over the knoll in the back of the church, a little shack where the, where the real minister used to live until he moved out. Is that enough? Are you satisfied? No, not yet. And he rolled on top of her. It was the last day, and he knew it. The sky was an ugly, bruised purple, wordly lit from above with the first fingers of dawn. Allie moved about like a wraith, lighting lamps, tending corn fritters that sputtered in the skillet. He had loved her hard after she had told him what he had to know, and she sensed the coming end and had given more than she had ever given, and had given it with the desperation against the coming of the dawn, given it with the tireless energy of sixteen. But she was pill this morning, on the brink of menopause again. She served him without a word. He ate rapidly, chewing, swallowing, chasing each bite with hot coffee. And Allie went to the bat wings and stood staring out at the morning, at the silent battalions of slow-moving clouds. 
It's kind of dust up today. I'm not surprised. Are you ever? She asked ironically, and turned to watch him get his hat. He clapped it on his head and pushed past her. Sometimes, he told her. He only saw her once more alive. By the time he reached Sylvia Piston's shack, the wind had died utterly, and the whole world seemed to wait. He had been in desert country long enough to know that the longer the lull, the harder the blow when it finally came. A queer flat light hung over everything. There was a large wooden cross nailed to the door of the place, which was leaning and tired. He rapped and waited. No answer. He rapped again. No answer. He drew back and kicked in the door with one hard shot of his right boot. A small bolt inside ripped free. The door banged against a haphazardly planked wall and scared rats into skittering flight. Sylvia Piston sat in the hall in a mammoth ironwood rocker and looked at him calmly with those great dark eyes. The stormlight fell on her cheeks in crazy half-tones. She wore a shawl. The rocker made tiny squeaking noises. They looked for each, at each other for a long, clockless moment. "'You will never catch him,' she said. "'You walk in the way of evil.' "'He came to you,' the gunslinger said. "'And to my bed. "'He spoke to me in the tongue, the high speech. "'He, he screwed you in every sense of the word.' "'She did not flinch. "'You walk in an evil way, gunslinger.' You stand in the shadows. You stood in the shadow of the holy place last night. Did you think I couldn't see you? Why did he heal the weed eater? He's an angel of God. He said so. I hope he smiled when he said it. She drew back her lip from her teeth in an unconsciously feral gesture. He told me you would follow. He told me what to do. He said you are the Antichrist. The gunslinger shook his head. He didn't say that. She smiled up at him lazily. He said you would want to bed me. Is it true? Did you ever met a man who didn't want to bed you? The price of my flesh would be your life, gunslinger, and he's got me with child. Not his, but with the child of great king. If you invade me, she let the lazy smile complete her thought. At the same time, she gestured with her huge, mountainous thighs. They stretched beneath her garment, garment like pure marble slabs. The effect was dizzying. The gunslinger dropped his hands to the butt of his pistols. You have a demon, woman, not a king. You fear not. I can remove it. The effect was instantaneous. She recoiled against the chair, and a weasel look flashed on her face. Don't touch me. Don't come near me. You do not touch the bride of God. Want a bet? The gunslinger said. He stepped forward. As a, as a gambler said, when he laid down a handful of cups and wands, just watch me. The flesh on the huge frame quaked. Her face had become a caricature of terror, and she stabbed the sign of the evil eye at him with pronged fingers. The desert, the gunslinger said after the desert. You'll never catch him. Never, never. You'll burn. He told me so. I'll catch him. The gunslinger said we both know it. What is beyond the desert? No. Answer me. No. He slid forward, dropped to his knees and grabbed her thighs and her legs locked like a thighs when she made strange, lustful, keening noises. The demon then, he said, out it comes. No.
He pried her legs apart and holstered one of his guns. No, no, no! Her breath came in short, savage grunts. Answer me. She rocked back in the chair and the floor trembled. Prayers and garbled bits of scripture flew from her lips. He rammed the barrel of the gun forward. He could feel the terrified wind sucked in her lungs more than he could hear it. Her hands beat at his head. Her legs drummed against the floor, and at the same time the huge body tried to suck the invader in. Outside nothing watched them but the bruised and dusty sky. She screams something high and inarticulate. What? M mountains What about them? He stops. He stops on the other side, sweet Jesus, to make his strength. Me meditation, do you understand? Oh, I'm, I'm. The whole huge mountain of flesh suddenly strained forward and upward, yet he was careful not to let her secret flesh touch him. Then she seemed to wilt, grow smaller, and she wept with her hands in her lap. So, he said, getting up, the demon is served, eh? Get out. You've killed the child of the Crimson King, but you will be repaid. I've set my watch and wired on it. Now get out! Get out! He stopped at the door and looked back. No child, he said briefly. No angel, prince, no demon. Leave me alone. He did. By the time he arrived at Kennerley's, a queer obscurity had come over the northern horizon, and he knew it was dust. Over toll, the air was set, dead quiet, still dead quiet. Kennerly was waiting for him on the chaff-strewn stage that was the floor of his barn. Leaving, he grinned abjectly at the gunslinger. Yar. Not before storm? Head of it. The wind goes faster than any man on the mule. In the open, it can kill you. I want the mule now, the gunslinger said simply. Sure. But Kennerly did not turn away merely stood as if searching for something further to say, grinning his groveling, hate-filled grin, his eyes flicked up and over the shoulder's shoulder. The gunslinger sidestepped and turned at the same time, and a heavy stick of stoat glove that it, the girl Subi had swished through the air, grazing his elbow only. She lost, she lost hold of it with the force of her swing, and it clattered over the floor and the explosive height of the lot, barn swallows took shadowed wing. The girl looked at him bovinely, her breast thrust with overripe grandeur at the wash-faded shirt she wore. One thumb sought the haven of her mouth with dreamlike slowness. The gunslinger turned back to Kennerly. Kennerly's green grin was huge. His skin was wax-yellow. His eyes rolled into their sockets. Ah! He began with a flim-filled whisper but could not continue. The mule the gunslinger prodded gently. Sure, sure, sure. The gun, Kennerly whispered, the grin now touched with incredulity that he should still be alive. He shuffled to get it. The gunslinger moved to where he could watch the man go. The hostler brought the mule back and handed him the bridle. You get in and tend your sister, he said to Subi. Subi tossed her head and didn't move. The gunslinger left them there, standing at each other across the dusty, dro dropping strewn floor. He with a slack grin, she with done and anonymous defiance. Outside, the heat was still like a hammer. I'm so sorry, I kind of stumbled there, but just to kind of recap, Kennerly was waiting for him. In case that was unclear, sorry. Uh, Kennerly was waiting for him 
when he went to get his mule and his daughter Subi had a piece of wood that she was going to try to um, I guess hit him or kill him with and she missed <laughs> and the gunslinger is just getting his mule so you know he actually let the man have his life and I think they're both kind of surprised that that, that happened not the gunslinger but Subi and her father Kennerly okay so let's continue reading on he walked the mule up the center of the street, his boots sending up squirts of dust. His water bag, swollen with water, was strapped across the mule's back. He stopped at the tonk, but Allie was not there. The place was deserted, battened down for the storm, but still dirty from the night before, and it stank of sour beer. He filled his tote sack with cornmeal, dried and roasted corn, and half of the raw hamburg in the cooler. He left four gold pieces stacked on the plank counter. Ali did not come down. Shib's piano bit him a silent yellow-toothed toodaloo. He stepped back out and cinched the tote sack across the mule's back. There was a tight feeling in his throat. He might still avoid the trap, but the chances were small. He was, after all, the interloper. He walked past the shuttered waiting buildings, feeling the eyes that peered through cracks and chinks. The man in black had played God and toll. He had spoken of a king's child, a red prince. It was only a sense of cosmic comic or a matter of desperation. It was a question of some importance. So was it, a, was it only a sense of the cosmic comic or a matter of desperation? It was a question of some importance. There was a shrill, harried scream from behind, and doors suddenly threw themselves open. Forms lunged. The trap was sprung. Men in long handles and men in dirty dungarees, women in slacks and faded dresses, even children tagging after their parents, and in every hand there was a chunk of wood or a knife. His reaction was automatic, instantaneous, inbred. He whirled on his heels while his hands pulled the guns from their holsters, the bolts heavy and sure in his hands. It was Allie. Of course, it had to be Allie, coming at him with her face distorted, the scar a livid, hellish purple in the lowering light. He saw that she was held hostage. The distorted, grimacing face of Shib peered over her shoulder like a witch's familiar. She was his shield and sacrifice. He saw it all, clear and shadowless in the frozen, deathless night of the sterile calm, and he heard her. Kill me, Roland. Kill me. I said the word nineteen. I said, and he told me, I can't bear it. The hands were trained to give her what she wanted. He was the last of his breed, and it was not only his mouth that knew the high speech. The guns beat their heavy, atonal music into the air. Her mouth flapped, and she sagged, and the guns fired again. The last expression on her face might have been gratitude. Sheb's head snapped back. They both fell into the dust. They've gone to the land of nineteen, he thought. Whatever, wherever that is, and whatever is there. Sticks flew through the air, rained on him. He staggered, fended them off. One with a nail pounded savagely through it, ripped at his arm, and drew blood. A man with beard stubble and sweat-stained armpits lunged, flying at him with a dull kitchen knife held in one paw. The gunslinger shot him dead, and the man thumped into the street. His false teeth shot out of his, as his chin struck and grinned, split shiny on the dirt. 
Satan! Someone was screaming. They are cursed! Bring him down! They entered upper! Another voice cried. Sticks rained on him. A knife stuck in his boot and bounced. The interloper! The Antichrist! He blasted his way through the middle of them, running as the bodies fell, his hands picking up targets with ease and dreadful accuracy. Two men and a woman went down, and he ran through the hole they left. He led them a feverish parade across the street and towards the rickety general store barber shop that faced Shebs. He mounted the boardwalk, turned again, and fired at the rest of his loads into the charging crowd. Behind them, Sheb and Ali and the others lay crucified. Behind them, Sheb and Ali and the others lay crucified in the dust. They never hesitated or faltered, although every shot he fired found a vital spot, and although they had probably never seen a gun. He retreated, moving his body like a dancer to avoid the flying missiles. He reloaded as he went, with a rapidity that also had been trained into his fingers. They shuttled busily between the gun belts and cylinders. The mob came up over the boardwalk, and he stepped into the general store and rammed the door closed. The large display window to the right shattered inward as three men crowded through. Their faces were zealously blank, their eyes filled with bland fire. He shot them all. The first two that followed them, they fell through the window, hung on the jutting shards of glass, choking the opening. The door crashed and shuddered with the weight, and he could hear her voice, The killer! Your souls! The cloven hoof! The door ripped off its hinges and fell straight in, making a flat hand clap. Dust puffed up from the floor. Men, women, and children charged him. Spittle and stovewood flew, and he shot his guns empty, and they fell like ninepins in a game of points. He retreated into the barber shop, shoving over a flour barrel, rolling it at them, throwing a pan of boiling water that contained two nickel-straight razors. They came on, screaming with frantic incoherency. From somewhere, Sylvia Piston exhorted them, her voice rising and falling in blind inflections. He pushed shells into the hot chambers, smelling the aromas of shave and tonsure, smelling his own flesh as the calluses at the tips of his fingers singed. He went through the back door and onto the porch. The flat scrubland was at his back now, flatly denying the town that crouched against its dirty haunch. Three men hustled around the corner, the large, with large betrayer grins on their faces. They saw him, saw him seeing them, and their grins curdled in the second before he mowed them down. A woman had followed them, howling. She was large and fat and known to the patrons of Shebs as Aunt Mill. The gunslinger blew her backwards, and she landed in a whorish sprawl. Her skirt rucked up between her thighs. He went down the steps and walked backwards into the deserts, ten paces, twenty. The back door at the barber shop flew open, and they boiled out. He caught a glimpse of Sylvia Piston. He opened up. They fell in squats. They fell backwards. They tumbled over the railing into the dust. They cast no shadows in the deathless purple light of the day. He realized he was screaming. He had been screaming all along. His eyes felt like cracked ball bearings. His balls were drawn up against his belly. His legs were wood. His ears were iron. His guns were empty, and they boiled at him, transmogrified into the eye and the hand. And he stood, screaming and reloading, his mind far away and absent, letting his hands do the reloading trick. Could he hold up? 
and tell them he had spent a thousand years learning this trick and others, tell them of the guns and the blood that had blessed them, not with his mouth, but his hands could speak their own tell. They were throwing, they were in throwing range as he finished reloading, and a stick struck him on the forehead and brought blood and abraded drops. In two seconds they would begin gripping distance, and the forefront he saw Kennerly, Kennerly's youngest daughter, perhaps eleven, Subi, two mo barflies, a whore named Annie Felden, he let them have it all, and the ones behind them, their bodies thumped like scarecrows, bloods and brains flew in streamers. They halted for a moment, startled, the mob face shivering into individual bewildered faces, a man ran in large screaming circles, a woman with blisters on her hands turned her head up and cackled feverishly at the sky. The man who he had first seen sitting gravely on the steps of the mercantile store made a sudden and amazing load in his pants. He had time to reload one gun. Then it was Sylvia Piston running at him, waving a wooden cross in each hand. Devil! 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 Monster! Destroy him! Brothers and sisters! Destroy the child-killing interloper! He put a shot in each of the cross pieces, blowing the rods to splinters, and four more into the woman's head. She seemed to accordion in on herself and waver like a shimmer of heat. They all stared at her for a moment in tableau while the gunslinger's fingers did their reloading trick. The tips of his fingers sizzled and burned. Neat circles were branded into the tips of each one. There were few of them, fewer of them now. He had run through them like a mower's scythe. He thought they would break with the woman dead. But someone threw a knife. The hilt struck him squarely between the eyes and knocked him over. They ran at him in, reaching, in a reaching, vicious clot. He fired the guns empty again, laying his own laying in his own spent shells. His head hurt, and he saw large brown circles in front of his eyes. He'd missed with one shot, downed eleven with the rest. But they were on him, the ones that were left. He fired the four shells he had reloaded, and they were beating him, stabbing him. He threw a pair of them off his left arm and rolled away. His hand began doing their infallible trick. He was stabbed in the shoulder. He was stabbed in the back. He was hit in the ribs. He was stabbed in the ass with what might have been a meat fork. A small boy squirmed at him and made the only deep cut across the bulge of his calf. The gunslinger blew his head off. They were scattering, and he let them have it again. Back shooting now, the ones left began to retreat towards the sand-colored pitted buildings, and still his hands did their business, like overeager dogs that want to do their rolling over trick for you, not once, not twice, but all night. And the hands were cutting them down as they ran. The last one made it as far as the steps of the barbershop's back porch when the gunslinger bullet took him in the back of the head. Yulp! the man cried and fell over and it was Toll's final word on the business. Silence came back in, filling jagged spaces. The gunslinger was bleeding from perhaps twenty different wounds, all of them shallow except for the cut across his calf. He bound it with a strip of shirt, then straightened and examined his kill. They trailed in a twisting, zigzagging path from back from the back door of the barber shop to where he stood. They lay in all positions. None of them seemed to be sleeping. He followed the trail of death, counting as he went. 
In the general store, one man sprawled with his arms wrapped lovingly around the cracked candy jar he had dragged down with him. He ended up where he had started, in the middle of the deserted main floor. He had shot and killed 39 men, 14 women, and 5 children. He had shot and killed everyone in tall. A sweetest the sweetest, the sickest sweet odor came to him on the first dry stirring of the wind. He followed it, looked up, and nodded. The decaying body of Nort was spread-eagled atop the plank roof of Shebs, crucified with wooden pegs. Mouth and eyes were open. The mark of a large and purple cloven hoof had been pressed into the skin of his grimy forehead. The gunslinger walked out of town. His mule was standing in a clump of weeds, about forty yards further along the remnant of the coach road. The gunslinger led it back to Kennerly stable. Outside, the wind was playing a jag-time tune. He put the mule up for the time being and went back to the tonk. He found a, letter in the, a ladder in the back shed, went up to the roof, and cut Nort loose. The body was lighter than a bag of sticks. He tumbled it down to join the common people, those who would have only had to die once. Then he went back inside, ate hamburgers, drank three beers while the light failed and faded and the sand began to fly. That night he slept in the bed where he and Allie had lain. He had no dreams. The next morning the wind was gone and the sun was its usual bright and forgetful self. The bodies had gone south like tumbleweeds with the wind. At mid-morning, after he had bound all his cuts, he moved on as well. He thought Brown had fallen asleep. The fire was down to no more than a spark, and the bird Sultan had put his head under his wing. Just as he was about to get up and spread a pallet in the corner, Brown said, There, you told it. Do you feel better now? The gunslinger started. Why would I feel bad? You're human, he said. No demon. Or did you lie? I didn't lie. He felt a grudging admittance in him. He liked Brown, honestly did, and he hadn't lied to the dweller in any way. Who are you, Brown, really? I mean, just me, said Umberturd. Why do you have to think you're in the middle of any such a mystery? The gunslinger lit a smoke without replying. I think you're very close to your man in black, Brown said. Is he desperate? I don't know. Are you? Not yet. The gunslinger said. He looked at Brown with a shade of defiance. I go where I have to go. Do what I have to do. That's good, then, Brown said and turned over and went to sleep. The next morning, Brown fed him and sent him on his way. In the daylight, he was an amazing figure with a scrawny sunburnt chest, pencil-like collarbones, and loony shock of red hair. The bird perched on his shoulder. The mule, the gunslinger asked. I'll eat it, Brown said. Okay. Brown offered his hand and the gunslinger shook it. The dweller nodded to the southeast. Walk easy, long days, and pleasant nights. May you have twice the number. They nodded at each other, and then the man Allie had called Roland walked away. His body festooned with guns and water. He looked back once. Brown was rooting furiously at his little corn bed, and the crow was perched on the low roof of his dwelling like a gargoyle. The fire was down. 
and the stars had begun to peel off. The wind walked restlessly, told its tale to no one. The gunslinger twitched in his sleep and was still again. He dreamed a thirsty dream. and the darkness, the shape of mountains was invisible. Any thoughts of guilt, any feelings of regret had faded. The desert had baked them out. He found himself thinking more and more about Court, who had taught him to shoot. Court had known black from white. He stirred again and woke. He blinked at the dead fire in its own shape, superimposed over the other, more geometrical one. He was a romantic. He knew it. He guarded that knowledge jealously. It was a secret he had shared with only a few over the years. The girl named Susan, the girl from Mages, had been one of them. That, of course, made him think of Court again. Court was dead. They were all dead, except for him. The world had moved on. The gunslinger shouldered his gun up and moved on with it. And that, my dear friends, is the end of the first of five chapters of The Gunslinger. And this whole first chapter was called, or first segment, was called The Gunslinger. Um, oh my gosh, I really love the opening. So you saw how he pulled out of the story, you know, rather quickly, how he does kill Tull, <laughs> literally kills Tull. And, you know, very much there are adult themes happening all over the place there. Uh, sex, murder, mayhem. And, you know, it, it was pretty intense. And it looked like the townspeople, you know, after Sylvia Piston had, had whipped everybody up into a frenzy. Well, of course, you know, Roland had... Well, I'm going to start calling the gunslinger Roland at this point, since now we know his name. It seems like Roland, after he had visited Sylvia Piston, she'd already been working on, more or less, uh, converting the townspeople to her cause and, and the cause of Walter O'Dim. And so she, that was the trap, I, you know, that was laid for him, just as Allie's trap was laid for her. And so when he went to go and visit Allie, just in that small time he was away, um, she, of course, asked Nort what 19 meant, and her mind just broke. So in that time, the townspeople laid a trap for our, our wonderful gunslinger, Roland, and it looks like maybe when he went to get his mule, they were going to try to get Kennerly to kill him first. And if that could be done then, then you know they were they would be done. But he managed to make it out of, out of the, um, I guess the barn or stable where the mule was being kept. And then of course you know he he goes looking for Allie or I guess to say goodbye or to leave. And and then literally all hell breaks loose, and he ends up destroying Tall. And I look at it as self defense. You know that it was it was mob, it was a mob frenzy. And they had no idea of what he was capable of. So, you know, this this was our first chance or opportunity to see why he is called the gunslinger. You know, his hands do that that trick. You know, they just muscle memory. His hands are so good. You know, he doesn't miss shots. 
and he defends himself and executes the town. I thought that a really interesting detail was that, you know, the storm is coming in. When when they're saying it's going to dust up, I, I think of like the dust storms that were prevalent in the middle of the United States, you know, during the Dust Bowl era where you would get these huge clouds of dust and they would like literally blow across and bury things or blow things away. And I've watched documentaries about this. I I do live in Texas, so and we did survive the Dust Bowl during that time. And, you know, people here in Texas and I think the largest one that ever hit our country um, left us as far as New York City. So, you know, these are very violent storms. So the idea that he went to bed and woke up the next day and the bodies were gone, they had all been blown away. You know, it's just a really interesting detail. And I liked how they were talking or how Stephen King writes about the sky being bruised and purple like a sick looking thing. So he knew, he knew just he, you know, being what he is, that that was the trap that was laid for him and he was hoping to get out and and didn't. I thought it was very human of Roland, our gunslinger, to instead of just leaving the town how he did, he did pull down Nort's body from where they had crucified him over the bar that he had been, I guess, resurrected in. I, I thought that was an interesting detail. So he does go and pull him down and lays him with, with the other bodies. And it's sad that the very first person in Toll that he kills with his guns is is Allie. But I took it that you know, she was begging him that, you know, her mind had broken and, and he gave her what she wanted, you know, that he um, he didn't really have a choice, you know, it was just, it all happened at one time. So I do like when he tells Brown, you know, I, I did what I had to do. I go where I have to go. I do what I have to do. So we know how stoic and and how driven he is and it was just kind of interesting to kind of see him already you know you were giving clues to this so it was really interesting to see him kind of get comfortable with Allie almost and you know there was a moment where they're in the bed when ship you know breaks into their room with the wood stick you know to and or with a knife not the wood stick he breaks into the went to the room to the bedroom with the knife you know hoping to to kill Roland and very jealous and upset and the sentences it would have frightened him very badly in another place and time but he just he really wasn't afraid then it was almost like he was kind of numb and just biding his time while things were happening so um the Sylvia Piston scene where she's in the rocking chair and he's got her guns and, you know, he, they talk about uh, removing the demon baby in her. That was so uncomfortable, but, and I've never really known quite what to think of that scene, but, um, you know, he's a gunslinger and I, we're going to find out more, I know, so we'll be sharing kind of what that means. Um, and he knows that he's a romantic character and he guards this information very jealously. So, I mean, he's a wonderful character. There's a lot of depth there. And I really love, again, the poetry of how this is written and 
the fast and quickness and the staccato language. Some of some of the reading for me is a little difficult. Um, some of the sentences don't flow as easily in my mouth as they read in my mind, but every bit of it is very visual. So it's like I can see what's happening, and my mind always goes back to like the good, the bad, the ugly type films where. You know, you have the shoot 'em scenes, the shoot 'em up scenes, and they're just orchestrated so wonderfully. In my mind, it's written this way. And this is really just a true piece of genius writing, absolutely genius writing. So I hope you enjoyed that. Our next reading, and I'll try to read some more tomorrow for us to get these posted up for you, is still the Dark Tower book. It is the second of five chapters, and this is called The Way Station. And I have read this before, so I really do like this next segment here. We're going to start getting into some really interesting things. And there was a drawing, there are illustrations in the book. So the illustration I'm looking at, and if you've read Stephen King books and you've seen the illustrations, you know what I'm talking about. But there is a picture of Roland and he's standing kind of like on a horizon and you can see that the dust is kind of dusting up behind him. And there is a literal trill of bodies in front of him making a path where he has shot everyone who came chasing after him. And there's like the debris. They had bricks. And you can see farming tools. You know, like it was it was absolutely a mob run at him. It's not bloodily drawn, but you can very tell. It's like they're not sleeping. They're very definitely, you know, they're just sprawled and laid out after him. And he is the only one remaining standing with his guns in his hands and it's um beautiful painting i really i would love to see these i guess canvases or drawings you know full size it's quite lovely the colors are subdued and you know it looks like it's evening you can tell the sky is bruised and you've got the people the bodies there and you know he's you can tell it's like oh you know he'd, he'd survived it and um so I love the illustrations in this book. It's really, they're wonderful. The Way Station has a kind of a picture that we're going to be reading. Um, and again, it's like a blank page. And then you see a little pen and ink drawing of a Way Station. And it's like a little shack. And it's kind of boarded up. And there's like a little silhouette hunched down and sitting by the side of it. And that's what we'll be getting into in our next reading. So I really hope you enjoyed this. Thank you for listening to Seppa Stories. If you have enjoyed this reading, please share and um, maybe tell if you think I'm doing a great job or you're liking listening to this, please share this. And, you know, I will continue to read for you. And thank you for sharing your time with me. So I hope you, you had a good time with that. This wasn't as relaxing, but it was a lot of action. And... I'll see you next time, and we will see what happens at the way station. So until then, have a wonderful rest of your day or evening, and good thoughts and positivity are on my way to you. Uh, thank you again. Bye.